You're listening to audio from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where we train students to preach the word and reach the world. For more free resources like this one, visit www.swbts.edu forward slash media resources. I suspect that it's been a long time since you probably had your quiet time reading in the book of Numbers. So would you join me in that fourth book of the Pentateuch, the book of Numbers, the ninth chapter this morning. Find your place in Numbers chapter 9. We'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 15. I want you to imagine that you're standing with me this morning in the Sinai Peninsula, in the Sinai Wilderness. We are overlooking, we're on a high place, we are overlooking much of that wilderness. It's the 5th, 15th century B.C. And what do I see? What do we see? Wow, unbelievable. That huge cloud of dust. What in the world is that? Well, what you are seeing is upwards of one and a half to perhaps as much as two million people making their way over a trackless desert. They have no compass. They have no guide. They have no map. They have no GPS system. There are no footprints to guide, no landmarks to direct. And yet these one and a half to maybe as many as two million people, people of Israel, having come out of captivity in Egypt, are actually on their way to the land that God has promised to give them. They are headed toward the promised land. Imagine the logistical nightmare of moving them through that trackless wilderness. I mean, no maps, no guides, no landmarks, no footprints, no GPS system. Imagine what it would be like to feed and water that many people on a regular basis. Think of how many MREs, meals ready to eat, you would have to provide for that many people making their way through that trackless desert. And yet, what is that I see hovering over the top, the center of that camp? Why, it's a cloud. It's a pillar of cloud by day. And it's a pillar of fire by night. And during the entire 40 years journey from their exodus in the 12th chapter of the book named Exodus to their entrance into the promised land in Joshua, not a single day did they fail to have that cloud, that pillar of cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night directing them through the wilderness. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful today if you had that kind of guidance from God? Well, you do. You do. You say, now, wait a minute, David. Last night when I went to bed, I saw no pillar of fire hovering over my apartment, my house, where I live. No, you didn't. And David, this morning when I got up, I saw no pillar of cloud over my home, nor did that pillar of cloud move from where I live over here to the seminary, directing me to get to the seminary today. No, it didn't. But when you awaken this morning, 
when you went to bed last night and when you awakened this morning, you had living in your heart, in the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you have the Holy Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, indwelling you. None of the people of Israel in the wilderness experienced that. You have the presence of the Lord Jesus in your life who said what? I will never leave you nor forsake you. What's that I see on your nightstand beside your bed? Why, that's a Bible. You have the completed canon of Scripture, the Word of the living God to guide you. Oh, yes, you do have guidance today to know God's will for your life, His direction and His purpose for your life as they did in the days of the wilderness. In the 15th verse of the ninth chapter of the book of Numbers, we come to a strategic hinge paragraph. Look at it with me, and I want to do an exposition of it this morning and make some application as well to our lives on the subject of following God completely, knowing the will of God for our lives and lessons that we glean from this great passage of Scripture in Numbers, chapter 9, beginning in verse 15. Now, on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out. And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year, Hebrew, the phrase, the word there means, or a longer period of time, a year or longer, that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it. The sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. There is a lesson that I glean from reading these verses, and the first lesson I glean is this God is with you always. God is with you always. I see this in the first two verses, verses 15 and 16. On the day the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony. In the evening, appearance of fire it was until morning. 
And it was so continuously the cloud would cover it by day and appearance of fire by night. Clouds are very unusual in the Sinai wilderness. I remember when I was there with some of our students and Dr. Preisler a few years back, maybe about four years ago now, and I remember when we spent about four or five hours in that Sinai area, I remember there was not a single cloud in the sky. It was an absolutely beautiful blue sky. Meteorologically, clouds are extremely rare in the wilderness. And yet we are told that for 40 years, from the moment the people of Israel left Egypt, recorded in Exodus chapter 12, as they made their way toward the promised land, not once, not a single day, nor a single night was the cloud not there. It was always there. Day and night, it was always there. What is that cloud, David? That cloud is more than just a meteorological entity. That cloud is the very presence, the manifest presence of God himself over his people. The Jewish scholars would say that is the Shekinah of God, the very glory of God's presence that led them out of Egypt, that appeared on Sinai. Then it moved over the tabernacle when the tabernacle was completed. And there for the next 39 years, as they would make their way through the wilderness, the cloud of God's presence was ever there. You will discover the phrase tabernacle and the phrase command of the Lord both occur seven times in these verses. They are the linguistic cement that holds this passage together. The tabernacle was a crucial part of the nation of Israel. It was the place of God's presence. It was known by three names. It was called the tabernacle of God because the word tabernacle means to dwell. God dwelt with His people. It was sometimes called the tent of meeting. Because there God met with Moses and with his people. But it was also called the tabernacle of testimony. Because there in the ark of the covenant were placed the tablets of the law. And it was there that God spoke to his people. The cloud appeared over that tabernacle. And remained throughout the Exodus generation. That cloud appeared also over Solomon's temple when it was constructed. And then that cloud, the presence of God, filled that temple so much that the priest could not get into the temple at that time. We're told that when Jesus was transfigured in Luke chapter 9, that he was enveloped in a cloud. We are told in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 1 that Jesus, his appearance, the scripture says, he was clothed with a cloud and his feet as pillars of fire. This cloud in numbers, and as you read it anywhere in the Pentateuch, as it makes its way with the people of Israel, leading them, guiding them, protecting them, directing them, this cloud is none other than the presence of God himself among his people. God is with you always. I love Matthew 28, verse 20, because when you look at it in the Greek text, There is not only the power of the meaning of the words, but there's actually the the visible way the words are constructed on the page. Literally in Greek, it reads like this. Jesus said to his disciples and to you and me today, I with you am. 
So you have the, pre- the, you have the personal pronoun ego, I, and then a me at the end. And then bookended right in between on either side is God. And there you and I are in the middle with you. I am with you. Your entire life from the moment of your conversion to the moment God takes you home to be with him. You have God's presence always. God is with you always. But there is another lesson I see. It's found in verse 17. And I discover here that God will guide you always. Don't you want to know and do and accomplish the will of God for your life? Don't you want to be obedient to God and His will for your life, whatever that will is? Do you really believe today that God will guide you always? Look at verse 17. Whenever, look at that, whenever, whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. The people of God... We're not, an order, we're not a disorderly mob as they moved through the wilderness. Rather, you read how God organized them with the tabernacle in the center, and you read about how the 12 tribes, three on each side, three, six, nine, 12, on the eastern side, Judah was the central of the three tribes carrying on his banner. Many rabbis, many Jewish scholars say the emblem of the lion. And whenever they would move out, Judah... And the two on each side of Judah would move together. Many scholars say that that 1.5 million people or upwards of 2 million people, depending on whose count you go by, that the actual camp would cover somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 to about 10 square miles. It was huge. God guided them always. And he will guide you always. It's his promise. Psalm 32 verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths. How about Isaiah 58 and verse 11. And the Lord will constantly guide you. From Genesis to Revelation are the countless promises of God that He will not only be with you always, but that He will guide you always. So much of your power in your Christian life and your peace in your Christian life consists in knowing where God would have you to be and then being there, being where God wants you to be. Are you where God wants you to be? Right now in your life? I mean, right now, this moment in this chapel service, are you where God wants you to be? Are you in His will for your life? And do you know that you are in His will for your life? Are you following His direction, His leadership in your life? You're not unless you're staying in close contact with Him. Did you know that NASA says that in the Apollo moon missions, those... Apollo astronauts in each of those missions during the 1970s, in the 60s and 70s, were off course 90% of the time. 
how in the world did they ever make it to the moon if they were off course 90% of the time in each one of those Apollo missions? It is because though they were off course 90% of the time whenever mission control said, boys, you're a tenth of a degree off trajectory, compensate one-tenth of a degree, and the Apollo astronauts compensated. That got them back on track because they were in constant touch with mission control. Now you hear me. If you don't stay in constant touch with mission control, much of your life will be off track and off trajectory. And you know, I don't know how it works. I know a little bit about how it works getting to the moon based on what I've read. But I also know a little bit about how it works in personal life because I've done a little personal living like you're doing. And those Apollo astronauts, if they refuse to correct even one-tenth of a degree now, then a few days later they would miss the moon by a hundred miles. And if you just allow a little bit of discord between you and God, if you're willing to obey 99% of God's will for your life and just that 1%, you're going to renege on. You're going to back away from. You're going to do it your way. Well, fine. Ten years down the road, 20 years down the road, you may miss God's best for your life by 100 miles spiritually. You better stay on track. God will guide you always. Whenever the cloud was lifted, that's when they marched. Whenever the cloud remained camped, that's when they remained camped. They were led by the cloud. God will guide you always. The radio show, This American Life, hosted by Ira Glass, had a, an interesting show one time. They had 100 people, and they asked them this question. Plan A. When you were in high school, graduating from high school in college, and you had made plans for your life, and you sort of had plan A, whatever that plan was, the question is now, how many of you, of 100 people, I asked this question, how many of you are still on plan A? Raise your hand. One person out of 100 raised their hand. And she was 23 years old. Everybody else was either on plan B or plan C or plan D. What do you do when you are living your life and you wind up with a detour along the way? And that detour in your life is caused either by your own direct disobedience of God or it can be caused by somebody else's disobedience to God. Or there is a third alternative. It could be caused by the sovereign hand of your God. In fact, regardless of the previous two, God's sovereign in your life and in my life and he knows how to take all the detours and all of the dead ends and redirect you to where you need to be God will guide you always but now number three in the bulk of this passage teaches this lesson God will guide you always as long as you obey Him. God will guide you always as long as you obey Him. Look at verse 18. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out. 
And at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered for many days, they would keep the Lord's charge. Mark that phrase in your Bible. They would keep the Lord's charge and they would not set out. God will guide you always if and as long as you obey Him. If you are not willing to obey God's clear commands for His will for your life now, you have no right to expect God to reveal one more inch of His plan and purpose and will for your life today. If you're not willing to obey all that you know of His will and His command for your life, His plan for your life, You have no right to expect Him to reveal any other part of your life. His will for your life. And oh, by the way, God's will for your life will never contradict His Word. Oh, but I'm in love with Him and I want to marry Him. He's not a Christian, but I'm going to win Him to Christ. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, the Scripture's clear about that kind of thing, isn't it? You never do the will of God by disobeying the Word of God. Never. God's Word is crystal clear in many areas. Are you and I obeying them as we should? God will guide you always as long as you obey Him. I want you to think with me just a minute in these verses about what it would have been like had you and I been there among that 1.5 upwards million people on their way to the promised land. Think about all of the uncertainty. This is what the author Moses is making the point here in verses 18 and following. One of the points that he's making is the uncertainty involved. They had an uncertainty of departure. There was no planned schedule sent out by Moses in a handout or email to everybody or placed on Facebook. Hey, by the way, next Thursday at 10 a.m., we're on the march, boys and girls. Nope, not how it worked. Didn't happen that way. There was an uncertainty of departure. They had no clue when they were to depart. Only when the cloud departed, then they knew they should depart. There was an uncertainty of departure. There was an uncertainty of duration. How long will we be camped? And then how long will we travel before the next camp? They didn't know. Now, when you set out on a journey, you know where you're going. You know approximately how much time it'll take you to get there. And you may use a GPS system or whatever to help you get there. And so you have all of those variables somehow narrowed down. That's not how it was with the people of Israel. When will we get there? When my kids were little, my wife's family living in Alabama, my family living in Georgia, but we living here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So certain times during, you know, maybe Christmas or Thanksgiving, we would pack everybody up, all four of them, and we would make our way back home to visit family. And it's a long journey for little children, especially when you're three, four, five years old. It's tough. And especially my girls, my two youngest were my girls, and they would always ask, when are we going to get there? How much longer? But when they were so little, they couldn't really, it was, it was impossible to help them to understand time, you know, four hours, six hours, whatever. But they were avid fans of the television show Full House. They watched all the episodes of Full House. 
And Sherry and I learned that we could divide up the time and help them to measure time in their minds by telling them, when they asked the question, Dad, when are we going to get there? We would say, we'll be there in three full houses. When three full houses are over, we'll be there. When five full houses are over, we'll be there. And in their little minds, they could begin to compute. They could identify because they knew roughly how long a full house aired on television. There was an uncertainty of duration. The responsibility of the people of God was to wait and to watch. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. That's true in your life today. There's an uncertainty of departure, what God's going to do in your life. What church will he lead you to next? What church will you become the minister of music in next? Where will you be on the mission field? For some of you, there's an uncertainty of departure. Will it be this year, next year, two years from now? Marriage, the same way. All things in life, the same kind of way. Sometimes there's this uncertainty of departure, uncertainty of duration. When will we be there? Your responsibility is to wait on God, watch for God, and obey God in the process. That's your responsibility. God will guide you as long as you obey Him. But I'll tell you this, you better be prepared to move when God moves. Some of you have been in the past in the military, or maybe you are still in the military. And you are probably aware now that in every military division, There are units that are prepared. They're called 24-hour divisions. And they are prepared to be deployed anywhere in the world in a 24-hour notice. So when they get orders, the clock starts ticking. Everybody's brought together, a full division, all the equipment, all the people, all the manpower. They're transported where they need to be, placed where they need to be placed. Within a 24-hour period, they can be there to meet any emergency in the world. So my question to you is today, are you in so touch and tune with God in terms of His will for your life that when His cloud moves in your life, as He makes it clear we're moving out now, are you prepared to go? And when you've been moving out and suddenly the cloud stops and says, okay, let's stay right here over Southwestern Seminary for three or four years while you get your education, which will be vital for you in the future of your ministry. And oh, you want to get out there and serve the Lord. You want to preach the word. You want to get on the mission field. And all of that may be very well be God's will and plan for your life. But don't miss if the God has brought you here and that's clear. Then give your best effort while the cloud remains over Southwestern Seminary in your life. Get all of the training you can get for a lifetime of ministry down the road. When the cloud stops, you stop. But when the cloud moves, you move. An uncertainty of departure, an uncertainty of duration, an uncertainty of destination. When the cloud departed, Moses, God through Moses, didn't say to the people, now we're leaving here from Dofka and we're going to Alush. That's the next location of stop. Not how it worked. God did not tell his people where the next destination was. They had to follow the cloud. Think about that. Uncertainty of departure, uncertainty of duration, uncertainty of destination. They didn't know the route, but God did. And the purpose in all of that for them and for you and me today, here's the purpose, is that we might be dependent totally and absolutely on God. 
That's the purpose. Look at what it, look at what it says here. Verse 19, even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. Look again in verse 23. At the command of the Lord they camped. At the command of the Lord they set out. They kept the Lord's charge. Twice do you read, they kept the Lord's charge. Do you know what that phrase means? It means to pull guard duty. To keep the Lord's charge was the descriptive phrase of the Levites who were told to stand guard over the tabernacle to make sure that no one got in who wasn't supposed to get in and that everything was done according to God's will and they kept the Lord's charge. That's the word, that's the phrase that's used here. It means to pull guard duty. So that what you do in your life as a Christian is you pull guard duty day by day, keeping your eyes on the cloud. When the cloud moves, you move. When the cloud stops, you stop. You keep the Lord's charge. Guard duty can be boring at times. So can parts of life, right? But when you're pulling guard duty, you never know what might happen. The uncertainty of it all. The important decisions. Have you noticed how important decisions in your life are made without any real certainty? (laughs) Marriage. Did you have any idea, those of you that are married, I've been married 33 and a half years, do you have any idea now what your marriage would have been like on the day you got married? Do you have any clue, any idea? Of course you didn't. Of course you didn't. There's the uncertainty. What about children? My children came along, Jeremy, then Jared, then Melody, then Kaylee. Four children. Any idea what, those, what that would do to your life when those children were being born? Not on your life, did you know? Any idea what they would cost? No. Any idea the difficulties and the drama, especially girls, will bring into your life? No. No idea whatsoever, none whatsoever. Life is lived in the midst of uncertainty about the future. Do you think for one minute I ever thought when I was a student at Southwestern Seminary here that I would be the dean of the School of Theology of this institution? (laughs) You better think again. God has a way of leading and directing our lives in a matter of uncertainty to us though absolute certainty with him. Life is long tracks of monotonous continuance in the same place, doing the same thing. Think about it. There you are with the people of Israel. Years pass, and the cloud doesn't move. Suddenly, without notice, when you least think of change, the cloud moves. Now watch it. Both the continuation and the change are the will of God. Both the camping and the moving out are the will of God. The only question is the timing and your willingness to obey when it happens. You can lag behind or you can get ahead. You better be careful when you do that. One of my favorite preachers of the 19th century was Alexander McLaren. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. He pastored over in Manchester in England. 
Listen to what he wrote. I cannot say it better than he did. So listen to this little section. We need to hold the present with a slack hand so as to be ready to fold our tents and take to the road if God will. We must not reckon on continuance nor strike our roots so deep that it needs a hurricane to remove us. To those who set their gaze on Christ, no present from which he wishes them to remove can be so good for them as the new conditions in in which he would have them enter. It is hard to leave the spot where you have so long encamped that it has come to look like home. We may look with regret on the little circle of black ashes on the sand where our little fire glinted cheerily. And our feet may ache and our hearts ache more as we begin our tramp once again. But we must set ourselves to meet the God-appointed change cheerfully in the confidence, listen, that nothing will be left behind which it is not good to lose, nor anything met ahead which does not bring a blessing. This is what Moses is teaching us in this strategic paragraph tucked away in this odd book in your Bible called Numbers. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud remained, they remained. They kept the Lord's charge. Verse 20 says, If sometimes the cloud remained a few days, they remained camped. And then when it moved, they set out. Verse 21, if sometimes the cloud remained from evening to morning, look at that. When the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Read the Pentateuch carefully and discover that the exodus actually began at night, still dark. And sometimes they moved at night, though more often did they move in the day. Verse 22, whether it was two days, a month, or a year, or longer that the cloud lingered, they remained camped and did not set out. But when the cloud lifted, they did set out. If you do a chronological study to the, as best you can of what you find in Exodus, Leviticus, actually Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, of when the people of Israel traveled, when they camped, where they traveled to, where they camped, and the length of time as best you can tell. In 40 years, here is what you will find. The shortest stay was one night. Just pull into a little Motel 6. Don't even get your tent out and set it up. Too much trouble. Sleep on the ground. And the next morning, the cloud moves. The shortest stay was one night. Do you know what the longest stay was in one place? Eighteen years. The shortest stay, one night. The longest during that 40-year period, 18 years. Whether it's one night or whether it's 18 years that the cloud remains until it moves you obey God you do not get ahead of him don't lag behind him you obey God you obey him in the midst of inconvenience you know it's inconvenient being in the wilderness oh I was there for four hours four years ago with Vern and Wes Mills and Dr. Pricer and some other students. We were there in Israel, the land of Israel, for about two and a half weeks. And 
Four, four hours of that time we were tracking through the desert in regions similar to description right here where the people of Israel would have been moving through during the Exodus. And I want you to know after four hours I was sick of it. Can you imagine 40 years? The Bible says, by the way, when they left Exodus, you read this all, if you study your Bible carefully, by the way, it really helps to spend more time reading the Bible than People magazine. Have you noticed that? If you really pay the price to really study the Pentateuch, here's what you will discover. You will discover that it took 40 hours to get the people of Israel out of Egypt. 40 hours. But it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the people of Israel. 40 years of zigzagging back and forth. Look in the back of your Bible at a map of the Exodus. Pull down that Bible atlas. You need to have at least one or two in your library. And look at the map of the Exodus. Do you know that from Sinai... To Kadesh Barnea is 150 miles, roughly, and a well-traveled area during that time, by the way. 11 days worth of traveling. But because of their disobedience, according to Numbers 14 at Kadesh Barnea, they spent the better part of 38 years and about 10 and a half months adding to the other year and two months or so that they had already been out there, a total of 40, where God would not permit them to enter the promised land. Until, by the way, all of that generation who had disobeyed God at Kadesh Barnea, who had tested Him and tried Him these ten times, the Scripture says, God said, your carcasses will fall in the wilderness. Now, they didn't lose their salvation. They were God's covenant people. But the high price of disobedience to God is something I hope you will take good account of now while you are young at Southwestern Seminary. Inconvenience leads to impatience. That annoyed feeling when things don't happen as quickly as you want them to or when things don't happen in the way you want them to and you get impatience. Patience is the ability to idle your motor when you feel like stripping your gears. And it is one of the perils of youth. We're not patient. And then that leads to impulsiveness. We want to act. We are inclined to act on sudden urges or desires. Where does that lead? Recklessness, rashness, irresponsibility. That's where that leads, the Scripture says. And all of that, by the way, was true of the Exodus generation. I just don't have time to bring it all out for you. Sometimes in circumstances in your life, You think you're hemmed in. It looks as if the situation is desperate. I've got to act now. The army of Egypt is behind me. The mountains are beside, are beside me. The Red Sea is in front of me. And when you feel that way, it is hard to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. But you better learn how to do that. God may delay in your life. Sennacherib's army encamping around the people of God, ready, poised the next day to overrun them and destroy them. But what happened in the night? God's angel came, what, 185,000? Destroyed just like that. 
Jesus walking on the water and what? The fourth, the fourth watch, the last from 3 to 6 a.m. The fourth watch of the night. The disciples fearful of their lives. He delayed, but he came. Lazarus. Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. But the Bible says Jesus deliberately delayed for him to be able to teach a greater lesson and show his glory. Peter in prison. But at the last moment, the angel comes and releases his chains and leads him out, and he is now free. If the Israelites had moved when the cloud didn't move, or if they didn't move when the cloud moved, they were suddenly in a position where they were no longer under the presence of God, the protection of God, and the provision of God. And the same is true in your life and my life when we disobey the will of God and move when the cloud remains or remain when the cloud moves. And so I beg you today while you're young, while you are training for ministry, that you will learn the lesson of Numbers 9, 15 through 23. Now look carefully at the last verse. At the command, verse 23, at the command of the Lord they camped, and at the command of the Lord they set out. Did you notice how that, those two phrases, like a refrain, run through these verses? In fact, many Old Testament scholars believe that there is a poetic form here. This may have actually been a song. The people of Israel, the elevated prose in this passage is such that the people of Israel are now on their poised, having just had the second Passover in the first part of chapter 9. Now they're ready to embark and make their way to the promised land. Hopes are high. They're excited and they're singing as they march. You thought the Marines invented the first cadences. C-130 rolling down the strip. U.S. Marines going to take a little trip. Mission, top secret destination unknown. Don't even know when we're going home. Stand up, buckle up, shuffle to the door, jump right out and shout, Marine Corps! Hoorah! When last summer... Dr. Ortiz and Mitchell were in Israel. They discovered buried in the sands an odd and unusual little written document. They pulled it out, looked at it, they dusted it off, they translated it. They noticed there were words in Hebrew, there were little metrical divisions, little metrical signs, and they discovered that they had found one of the marching cadences of the people of God during the Exodus generation. At the command of the Lord we march. At the command of the Lord we camp. Pillar of cloud our guide by day. Pillar of fire our guide by night. Get up, pack up. Let's move out to the promised land with a hallelujah shout. Now that might be a bit apocryphal, but... But my point to you today is they sang as they went. There was an excitement about it. At the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they moved out. They kept the Lord's charge, verse 23. At the command of the Lord through Moses. God always has his leader. 
They kept the command of the Lord through Moses. Now there is a right way and a wrong way to preach from, interpret, and teach the Old Testament. If you go through the Old Testament constantly spiritualizing, moralizing, and allegorizing, you're in trouble. But if you recognize that all of Scripture is God's Scripture and you, let the, you read the Old Testament with New Testament glasses, you'll be in much better shape. So I'll not take the time to read. The hour's late. We must conclude. But 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12 describes how you need to read this passage as a Christian. These things in the Old Testament, including Numbers 9, are written for our learning upon whom the ends of the age has come. These things happen and are written for our examples that we may learn to trust God. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Numbers is one of the key books for the author of Hebrews, the third chapter beginning in verse 7. The quotation from Psalm 95 and also Numbers 14, which says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, as they did in the wilderness. You better follow that cloud when it moves. You better obey that God in that cloud when he stops, because there is a high price to pay if you don't. God's work is perfect, rest in it. God's word is perfect, live by it. God's will is perfect. Walk in it. Richard Baxter's final words, that great Puritan, were these. Lord, what you will, where you will, when you will. You don't know the future, and you don't see the big picture. Anybody that knows me knows I like baseball. So we'll just close with this. Earl Weaver Famous Hall of Fame manager, Reggie Jackson, Mr. October, famous Hall of Famer as well. Earl Weaver had a rule. None of his people on his team, none of his players could steal second base without him personally giving the steal sign. That's his rule. Reggie Jackson chafed under that rule. He hated that rule. He thought he knew the pitchers and catchers well enough, so he didn't need to worry about that. So on one occasion when he was on first base, he knew the pitcher well, he knew the catcher, and he stole second base, and he was safe by a mile. He stood up, dusted himself off, had a big victory grin on his face. Later, after the game, Earl Weaver, manager, pulled Reggie Jackson aside, and he said, Reggie... When you stole second base, that left first base open. And my next batter was my power hitter, Lee May. And because he was my power hitter, you effectively took the bat out of his hands. And that's why they intentionally walked Lee May, put him on first. And then my next batter up had a lifetime batting average against that pitcher of about negative 10,000. He couldn't hit him if he were throwing up softballs. And so I had to go to my bench too early in the game for a pinch hitter. And that didn't work out. And Reggie, that left me with no bench strength later in the game when I needed it. And you see, Reggie, you were thinking about this inning, this half inning alone, and your relationship to the pitcher and the catcher. But Reggie, I was thinking about the whole 
game. So don't ever steal second base again unless I give you the signal. You don't know the future. You don't know the big picture. Only God does. And that's why when you are tempted to steal second base with the will of God for your life before you have clear signals from God to do so, you may be making a crucial mistake. At the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they marched. They kept the Lord's charge. At the command of the Lord, through. Moses. Thank you for listening to this audio from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you want more information on our academic programs, or if you would like to support our mission, visit www.swbts.edu.